How is everybody doing? And welcome back for another Strength Chat episode. Today, I have got a very special guest for you all. Today, I'm joined by a doctor of physical therapy, a strength and conditioning coach. He writes, he's a researcher. Today, I'm joined by the one and only Dr. Merrick Lincoln. How are you doing? Great. Thank you, coach. Thanks so much for having me. Man, your your podcast is a, a who's who of strength <laughs> and conditioning. What other physical therapists have you had on? Um, quite a few, quite a few, really. Um, so I've spoken with uh, Dan Pope, which was uh, which was which was really good. Um, uh, spoken with uh, Professor Stuart McGill, which was which was really good. I know that was about a little bit more uh, lower uh, lower back. Um, but yeah, I always feel really uh, lucky um, when uh, when when people respond to me um, and and really appreciate. Uh, really appreciate when people take the time to jump on um much like you much like yourself um and how are you what's been what's been happening in your world recently i'm honored to be invited just you know appreciate it thanks coach um so i like you mentioned it was a great intro i'm a physical therapist by training and i started my career as a clinician i found my way into academia so my current um full-time career is associate professor. I work in the exercise science and rehabilitation medicine programs at a, it's a mid-sized university called Saginaw Valley State. Uh, it's in Michigan, United States of America. You'd be forgiven for having not heard of it. Um, I grew up, you know, in and around the Detroit area. Um, and that was only, you know, that's only an hour and a half away. And I had never heard of Saginaw Valley State, but um, we're, uh, we're an up and coming university and trying to make a name for ourselves in pre-professional education. That is, I'm sending a lot of students off to doctorate of physical therapy programs, athletic training programs, doctor of chiropractic programs, um, medical school, but also in the strength and conditioning front, um, trying to establish a strong program for up and coming strength and conditioning professionals. Yeah, nice. And with that, because um, the, the, little bit I, the little bit I know about where um, uh, gyms are and where the US. I've only ever been to New York and I've only ever been to Florida, so uh, two uh, two very different places. Um, but I know you know in a small uh, area there can be quite a lot of gyms, quite a lot of sports teams, especially in terms of like college teams. What's kind of the um uh, the catchment area around you? Is that is the is there quite a lot, or is it a little bit a little bit further further afield? So it's, a, it's an interesting place. Uh, if you envision the state of Michigan, it's that uh, area that's surrounded by Great Lakes or inland seas. So it's very identifiable on the map and it's shaped like a mitten, right? So we're right where the thumb meets the hand of the mitten. So we call it the Great Lakes Bay region. Um, very, very different from the San Francisco Bay region, which, you know, that's tech billionaires, um, very nice weather. Uh, we get nice weather uh, half the year, you know, the summer, the fall, the spring actually are quite nice, but we just got a load of snow last night. Um, <laughs> but in the, in the Great Lakes Bay region, we have um, some industry. So one of the largest chemical companies in the world is, is based here. Um, strong healthcare presence. Um, Mid-sized universities, there are no large universities uh, in this immediate area. Um, and then the larger sports teams are around Detroit, right? That's the, the biggest city in Michigan. Um, so it's it's an opportunity in a sense um, where a clinician like myself might have the opportunity to work for a, um, work with a team or a um, you know minor league team, uh, whereas the professional teams often have um, employed rehabilitation professionals and employed strength and conditioning coaches 
Um, whereas we could potentially get involved in a more of a, um, as a consultant or, um, yeah. you know, in addition to our day-to-day work. So it's, there are opportunities as well. Um, but it's, it's a unique place and it's actually one of the, it is the most affordable university in our state. So we draw, um, a lot of students who might be first generation college students and, uh, backgrounds like my own very blue collar, um, and I think it's it's our job as professors, as instructors, as as coaches and role models um, to show, you know, what can be done uh, with if you take these steps that aren't always easy, um, you know, go through these steps of education, certification, um, you know, get the experience and and ultimately what kind of career can come with that. So I'm always happy to to you know jump on talks like this, um, write in the fitness realm, publish in the scholarly literature kind of spread myself around like that just to um, kind of provide an example of what can be done with, you know, an exercise science, strength and conditioning or clinical background. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you said there about sort of the, the consultancy side of things. Um, a guy that I worked with, well, um, a friend, should I say, um, worked with for a very, very long time. We both started at the same time. Um, he's now more of a, a consultancy um, role now. Um, so his uh, specialist area is um, sprinting and work, working with athletes. So, you know, he's working what he's worked with. Uh, people from Ultimate Frisbee all the way up to um, you know the the, the Premiership in uh, in rugby with players. Um, so I think sometimes you know when we and I, why I wanted to touch on that is when we speak about strength conditioning, people think that you always need to be full time with a team, whereas actually sometimes there can be different avenues that you can that you can go down depending on you know the area that you are in or the sport that you work with or or, or whatever it may be. Um, You've touched on a couple of bits there in terms of the the fitness side of things and the and the research side of things. But for everyone listening who might not know your background, how you got into training, how you got into research to get to the point, you know, where you are now, just want to give a little bit of a background to yourself. Yeah, so athletically, um, I started as an endurance athlete. So, you know, out of college as a pre-medicine student, I got into um, running marathons, ultra marathons. Yeah. Um, half iron triathlons, and I was doing all these things at the same time and suffering overuse injuries. And um, while I don't have the classic story of I went to physical therapy, I met a physical therapist and decided that's what I want to do with my life. Um, I, I did meet some physical therapists who who seemed to know kind of secrets. Uh, it seemed to me they knew secrets of, of rehabilitating these injuries. And I wanted those secrets. I wanted to know those secrets. Um, so course correct. I didn't go to medical school. I went to uh, earn a doctorate of physical therapy. Um, coming out of school, um, I, I'd always kind of enjoyed reading research in biomechanics and, um, you know, making connections in the gym. So my entry to academia came from those two areas. A uh, guy at the gym who worked for Saginaw Valley State University knew they were hiring, needed a professor who could teach biomechanics. Um, so that's where I started. And ultimately, it led to a full-time position. And uh, here I am doing some clinical practice, a lot of teaching, some research, um, and then also, you know, the fitness writing side of things. Uh, I have over 50 mostly long format fitness articles that I've written in the last couple of years. Um, Unfortunately, you know, that medium is it may be a dying breed here. That's why I'm so happy to be on something like this. This podcast (laughs) is kind of I consider it in the same way. It's a long format. We get to have a discussion, get into the details, um, you know, in a world of vertical videos and 30 second sound bites, it's, it's rare to, 
yeah, absolutely. Uh, this might be. Uh, I think. I, I think I said in the email when we were when we set up this, there might be a few tangents in there, but I do think so. Basically, we run. Um, we have uh, younger coaches that have come in. Um, maybe it's their first job as as a trainer, um, and they spend some time working with me, um, training just to develop experience, uh, the softer skills of coaching. But also just increase their increase their knowledge, and I think you know reading articles, reading um, you know uh, journals, or you know at least you know trying to have a look at them, um, and listening to podcasts, and like what you say, the longer form longer form content is is really helpful. Um, I think sometimes. I always remember we had a we had a chat with um one trainer who who came in and he just listed a load of um Instagram handles um which was pretty sad to hear um because I think that's become the the all the all conquering um all C and I of everything whereas you know sometimes you know you're not going to get as much information or as much knowledge out of a thirty second clip don't get me wrong. I've shared 30 second clips. Uh, I think everyone does now. Um, but yeah, I think actually digging a little bit deeper, you know, having discussions, that's the whole reason why I set this podcast up. But also, you know, uh, reading other things is, is a really useful tool. Just from what you've said there, obviously you've um, uh, got a couple of hats there um, in terms of what you do. How do you find balancing that and switching between sort of the the research side of things to then you know writing writing articles to then teaching um more so from my side of view obviously switching from um my role is kind of changing from being you know having a full client list coaching on the gym floor to now coaching other coaches and trying to improve them and sometimes I do I do struggle switching uh switching roles on there because I'm always thinking from a coach point of view rather than a coach of a coach, if that makes sense. How do you, how do you find um, switching switching hats? You know, it's the way I view these things is they're all so closely related. You know, we're working with the same physiology, and my biases. I approach my clinical practice very similar to, you know, how a strength coach might approach their position. And I'm teaching strength and conditioning coursework and biomechanics and exam and diagnosis coursework. So all of these things, they, they reinforce each other. Um, and my writing and my research is all centered down this line of applied biomechanics and strength and conditioning exercise technique. Um, so they, they reinforce each other in, in a sense, um, you know, there's, there are different expectations. Um, you know, I sit in an office at the university when I'm not in front of a classroom, um, in the physical therapy clinic, I'm in, you know, it's a, like a small gym environment. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it, in a sense, I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive and I see more and more, I'm opening my eyes to it. There, there are more professionals who are doing multiple things. You don't have to limit yourself to just one, just like you mentioned about the consultant, uh, friend you had, um, it may not be his or his or her full-time occupation, um, uh, but being a specialist in sprinting, um, put that knowledge to work, you know, on the side of your day to day or nine to five. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so had a little bit of a of a background, a little bit of a tangent there. I did I did say sometimes there would be there would be a tangent, but um uh, obviously I sent over some of the some of the topics in in mind um to, to go through today. And uh, the first question is 
you know, and you kind of touched on it being, you know, an endurance runner, you know, picking up niggles and injuries and you've probably um, worked with, you know, um, and, and seen uh, people just wanting to push through uh, pain uh, and just wanting to wanting to keep going. I just wanted to touch on, you know, what um, what what is the definition of a, of a pain threshold? What what is it when we're talking when we're talking about that? And does that does that differ between people? And is it also different when we're talking about athletes? Yeah. So the, the scariest thing, I just you know, small another small tangent here. The scariest thing a physical therapist hears is when their client comes in. The first thing they say is, "Well, you know, I have a high pain threshold." <laughs> and uh, and it hurts this much, you know, um, and, and you wouldn't believe how common that is. Um, that's, uh, you know, it's not a red flag. It's 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 something, though. Um, it it, it kind of hints as to um, this individual's mindset around their pain um, and kind of the work we have cut out for us when we're we're helping to manage uh, that client's case. Um, so I guess we can start by defining pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, a common definition of pain. It's it's an unpleasant sensory experience associated with um, or resembling the association with actual or potential tissue damage. So that's kind of a interesting diagnosis or that's kind of an interesting definition, isn't it? Um, It's, it's an unpleasant sensory experience and it's associated with potential uh, or actual tissue damage or resembling that association. So it's kind of nebulous in a sense. And what that definition hints at I think is that um, all individuals in pain aren't necessarily tearing down or breaking down their body. Um, it's it's an experience and it does belong to the individual that's experiencing it. Um, so that pain experience can be kind of broken down into two key elements here. You have the intensity of the pain, how, how bad is it? Um, and the pain affect. So how it's affecting their um, readiness to perform. So if you have an athlete, how, how does this experience of pain uh, modifying their ability to perform in the gym, on the field, on the court? Um, so looking at, looking at that, um, you'll, you'll find individuals with diff- varying intensities of pain, but also experiencing that pain in very different ways. Um, it's affecting their lives in very different ways. So I, I think the, the first thing to, to mention is that um, because it is a, an experience that belongs to the individual, that individual has every right and probably should be encouraged to have that pain addressed by someone who's trained in examination and diagnosis. So um, someone's in pain, they should have the opportunity to, to get checked out. And that might comfort the individual having a, you know, if it comes to a diagnosis maybe, or j- just get checked out and maybe get some re- reassurance from a medical professional of some sort. Um, so I'd, I'd like to start there. Uh, I don't want to disregard the pain and say, all right, this individual should just work through it. Um, no, we have to we have to check it out. And I think Dan Pope, I checked out that episode. Dr. Dan Pope did a great job of explaining how um, the medical professional screening for red flags um, in issues that might be not related to the musculoskeletal system, um, constitutional in nature, um, yeah. things like that. Um, the medical professional will also screen for high risk injury. Um, so that is injuries that may not, um, may have a high risk of poor healing. Um, so I'm thinking about uh, stress fractures, stress reactions um, in a lot of the bones of the foot around the ankle on the tension side of the neck of the femur. Um, 
some of the bones of the wrist, for example, um, if you have a stress fracture or stress reaction in those locations, those are considered to be high risk. And we might not be as inclined um, to encourage an athlete to work through really any pain at all um, if they present with a, with a diagnosis like that. Um, but if we focus on the kind of the more common presentation of uh, musculoskeletal or musculotendinous injuries um, that are not high risk, uh, we, we aren't fearing for that tissue's ability to heal, and we aren't fearing for that tissue's health. Um, there may or may not be an injury there, and our definition of pain suggests that, that there, there may, may be actual tissue damage or potentially no actual tissue damage. Um, but once we've been screened, evaluated, um, and we see that this is not a um, something outside of the scope of musculoskeletal injury or a high-risk musculoskeletal injury, then we might proceed with um, something called a pain monitoring model. And I know you and Dan Pope talked about this a bit. Uh, I've been talking about it lately. Um, I have a lot of respect for Dr. Pope. Actually, um, early in my career, I listened to a lot of episodes of his fitness pain-free podcast. So oh, nice. you know, learning from these long format um, platforms. Yeah. Um, so I think he did a great job of explaining this pain monitoring model that's been used for a variety of diagnoses at this point. It's um, first was described for use of patellofemoral pain. So that's kind of anterior knee pain. Um, then a lot more of the research surrounds uh, Achilles tendon pain or um, heel pain uh, related to the Achilles tendon. Um, we have studies suggesting it's used for tennis elbow, for um, rotator cuff related pain, for patellar tendinopathy, a tendon problem uh, of the quadriceps tendon. Um, and uh, acute hamstring injury actually was an interesting one. Um, and this research suggests that we don't necessarily have to stop in the face of pain, particularly if that pain is well-controlled um, or low risk. Yeah. Uh, and that pain monitoring model, typically, um, if you envision a zero through 10 scale, so a visual analog scale, zero being no pain at all, and 10 being uh, extreme pain or the worst pain you can imagine. And we have to be kind of disciplined about how we anchor those extremes because um, if we anchor them in different ways, people might give us different numbers. Yeah. Um, so we typically describe the um, the beginning of the scale, the zero point and the 10, um, and then don't really try to describe uh, or um, define the numbers in between. Um, so we ask the, the athlete or the individual to rate their pain uh, between zero and 10. And Typically, uh, zero, one, two, or three is considered low-risk pain for a musculoskeletal injury, uh, a low-risk musculoskeletal injury. And a four and a five, that's kind of a proceed with caution. Um, and then above a five, so your six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, typically that's considered high risk. And now these pain scales um, don't have to be used exactly like that. In fact, that study, uh, Hickey et al., I believe it was 2020, um, used a threshold of um, four as the cutoff between um, moderate risk and high risk. So because those individuals in that study had just recently experienced their hamstring injury, um, they decided to consider five out of 10 as being high risk pain. Um, there was another one on um, shin splints, uh, another study on shin splints that used a pain monitoring model and also considered a five to be high risk. So we're not set in stone of using these values, um, but it's just a general guideline. Um, now, an athlete might um, have trouble defining their pain within that range. 
And, and I, I think that that is um, something maybe maybe um, we can guide our athletes with. Um, and a couple of questions I like to ask the athlete or the client in front of me is, do you feel in control? So this is kind of getting at that pain experience. Um, do you feel in control of your pain? So if an athlete or an individual feels like they're still in control, that tells me that their, their pain is likely um, lower risk, um, relatively well controlled. And then I also ask, does this pain you're experiencing make you feel like you want to stop the activity? And that's kind of respecting their autonomy, but also hints at uh, the pain experience. Um, it, is this pain so severe that they're not wanting to train, not wanting to compete anymore? Um, and that should be respected. Um, so we can help our athletes kind of rate the pain on this on this pain monitoring model, but we shouldn't we shouldn't endeavor to define each and every one of those numbers. That actually might ruin the validity of that scale. Yeah. Do you, Do you think what what kind of went through my head there is? Um, having it is just setting the parameters so the athletes can work in because I think and you know we can we can touch on this a little bit more of that um sort of mindsets versus actual um maybe tissue damage you know from the definition that you mentioned there there could be a few different things you know the athlete might have had previous injuries in the past how close you know the injury was or the pain can you use that as a parameter to, you know, change those so you can um, control maybe how much they uh, control, how much they can control the exercise, if that makes sense, and how much they push the exercise? So, I think I understand the question. Um, we're we're approaching this in a, in a way uh, of we don't necessarily know if there's actual tissue damage. Um and, you know, for example, if we take tendon problems, tendinopathy uh, or tendon and disrepair, um, if we look at Cook and Purdom's tendon continuum model, essentially describing um, the, the range or the continuum from a healthy tendon to a tendon in complete disrepair, um, the stage along that continuum where athletes tend to experience pain is a reactive tendinopathy. And in a reactive tendinopathy, um, there may be very little evidence of actual tissue damage um, in the in the sense of in the clinical sense where um, you may not be able to see swelling, you may not be able to feel increased tissue temperature. Um, it would take very sophisticated imaging um, to to clue us in to whether or not this individual is experiencing uh, a reactive tendinopathy. We have to use our um, we have to use the clinical. Um, uh, suggestions that the athlete brings us. So maybe there was a period where the athlete trained less, and then there was a spike in training load that might clue us into this could be a reactive tendinopathy. Um, an individual was inactive for a period of time and then picked it back up training, uh, or they were injured for a period of time and then got back into training. And then they experienced this reactive tendinopathy, uh, painful tendon issue. Um, now, now that might be very painful, but it's actually unlikely that there is um, risk of tissue failure. So that would be an example of where the, that individual might be a good candidate for a pain monitoring model. Um, and we can reassure that athlete that this painful tendon issue, um, your tendon is still very strong. And if we manage loads appropriately, and we're gonna use your pain, your subjective report of pain as one of the key inputs to determine the appropriate load, um, 
we're going to be able to rehabilitate this, get you through this. Uh, whereas at the other end of that uh, tendon pathology continuum, uh, we have the degenerative tendon. Uh, and that tendon is typically not painful. That's the tendon that's weakened, has experienced tissue damage, and it's typically not painful. Um, and that's kind of a scary thought in my mind, at least, because those are the ones that are most likely to actually rupture, right? So when you hear about people who have a, um, you know, an Achilles rupture or a quadriceps tendon rupture, um, those injuries are most often not painful leading up to that, that rupture. Um, it was a uh, tissue damage that occurred, um, previously, maybe hadn't been properly rehabilitated or the healthy tissue around that degenerative tendon tendon wasn't strengthened adequately um, to maintain and improve the strength of that tendon structure. And then ultimately it failed. Um, so I think we can reassure our clients with tendon problems in a sense that if this is a painful tendon problem, that may actually be a good thing because your body's giving us clues that it needs attention. And I think Dan Pope defined pain as a a body's cry for change or attention. Yeah, and I like that. I like that a lot. Absolutely. There's a, there's another one where um, I can't remember who, who, I can't remember the analogy uh, who said that analogy, but um, it's a little bit like a smoke alarm, you know, something's going off, you know, that there's a fire somewhere, but at the minute you just need to listen to the, you need to listen to the, listen to the fire alarm. Cause there's, you know, there's some, there's some smoke there. Um, one thing, and you, you kind of mentioned it at the, at the at the start when we started talking about or, or started talking on this topic about you know when when clients when athletes go in and be say oh I've got a high I've got that high pain threshold and everything that you've mentioned uh, everything that you've spoken about there how much is that where does that where does that come from you know do people have do athletes have higher pain thresholds um, and does that come down to something physical. Um, in terms of, you know, their previous training, where they are in their career, if you like, depending on how old how, how old they are or how young they are, or is that more of a mindset, uh, more of a mindset thing, would you, would you say? So I think in the truest sense, I, I think we misuse this term high pain threshold often. So I think in the truest sense, a, a pain threshold is when a stimulus or some sort of input is no longer perceived as, you know, like a tickle, um, but now we're perceiving it as pain. It's yeah. met that threshold, but now we're, we're thinking about this now as this hurts. Yeah. Um, that's, that's not how that athlete or that client is using that term. Um, they are using that term in a sense of, I recognize that I have high intensity pain, but I don't let it affect me. I don't let it slow me down. And they're almost bragging in a sense that I, in the face of this high intensity pain, I'm not stopping. I don't tend to stop. And this is that individual in my mind that has that no pain, no gain mindset. And that's uh, that can be a challenging individual to work with um, because it's certainly not a no pain, no gain situation. Um, a well-controlled pain um, gain situation might be a, a better way of describing um, painful tendon rehabilitation. So um, I, I think when when the athlete or the individual says that they have a high pain threshold, um, that is a warning sign to the coach, to the clinician, uh, that that athlete maybe isn't um, isn't appreciating uh, fully um, or isn't, um, I suppose, isn't allowing 
that high intensity pain that they're experiencing to change what it is they're doing in a day in and day out basis. Um, And I don't think that's really anything to brag about. Um, So, so you have that individual and that can be very much a challenge. Um, And I think education surrounding a pain monitoring model can be very helpful um, for that individual. Uh, Now, we don't want to scare the individual and, Mm -hmm. and put thoughts of tissue failure into their mind where for the most part, that's not a valid concern anyway for a painful tendon issue. Um, But we may wish to explain that continually pushing through these high uh, levels of pain may be indicating to us that the loading or the um, activities that you're doing in the face of this injury are far from optimal. Um, And there's certainly something to be said for sensitization. Um, So pain is so complex. There's potential for pain that persists individuals who have pain that persists to experience something called central sensitivity, having trouble with that word, central <laughs> sensitization, um, essentially where um, that process, uh, the processes that are occurring where the, um, whatever the nociceptive input, the inputs from the tissue that are being interpreted as pain are being uh, amplified over time. We're becoming more in tune to that, to that input. Um, and it becomes harder to shake the pain when we have uh, sensitization occurring. So uh, we, we don't want to scare the individual, but we want to explain that this isn't necessarily a good thing that, yeah. or a point of pride at this moment that you have a pine, high pain threshold. You're here, let's try to get on a program that best manages it. Yeah, and do you think that, you know, when, because, uh, you know, I, I do think that trend of, you know, what's the phrase? Um, no pain, no gain or, or, or anything like that. And that kind of like the grinds just going just going through things even when you're injured um or, or have like a niggle is is fading out because I just think um it just doesn't work. You know, the you you know the you need to get those hours in to get better at, you know, your sport or your skill or or, or whatever it may be. So just just pushing through um actually can sometimes mean um, more uh, you know, more time on the sideline. And just referring it back to the definition of pain that you mentioned, is that where um, when you're working with a, with, with a client, with an, with an athlete, where that definition of, uh, of pain will, will change and then all of a sudden it does become um, actual um, tissue damage and that's when, you know, things need to change in terms of the, um, uh, the plan going forward, if that makes sense. A really good point coach so along that if we go back to our example of tendons and disrepair along that tendon pathology continuum there is the potential for reactive tendinopathy that's our painful tendon issue to turn into a degenerative tangent tendon um, so to make the transition from reactive to degenerative um, and when we're making continuous loading errors over time time and time again um, there is the potential for reactive tendinopathy to transition into um, actual tissue damage, a weakened tendon, a degener- degenerative tendon. Um, so again, not to scare the athlete or individual, uh, but if we keep making the same training error, we're certainly not going to effectively rehabilitate the injury. Um, and there is over time, the potential of making matters worse. Now that's a long-term thing. If you push through pain, uh, you know, here and there, if you push through high level or high risk pain here and there, most likely nothing adverse is going to happen, but it's the individual that has that individual, that mindset 
um, that that's what they're going to do and they're going to continue to do it. But I agree with you. I think we're, we're doing a good job of getting away from that and we're empowering athletes to, to manage their pain. Um, and there are a lot of things that athletes do these days to, to manage their pain. Um, so, you know, pain being a subjective experience, uh, you know, we can do things like foam rolling, uh, you know, the Theragun, the um, electrical stimulation uh, units, the portable electrical stimulation units, all of these things to better control our pain um, and give us uh, a little bit more ownership over that experience. So uh, I do still like to encourage that athlete or that individual with that kind of hard-nosed mindset to take ownership of it and to try to troubleshoot and and reduce the intensity of that pain into parameters that are acceptable and then move forward. Yeah. I think part of that is adding in a little bit of uh, maybe independence uh, to them, to them as well. Like what you mentioned about, you know, controlling, uh, controlling their pain and, um, you know, or sorry, do they feel in control of of, of their pain and just think, you know, look, these are the things that you, that you, that you can add in. I know for me, when, um, when members and clients uh, come in, come into the gym um, and they've got niggles, well, depending on the severity of the injury, I'll always re- refer out. Um, but equally, you know, there's a list of things there that they that they can do. And sometimes, you know, having that, um, like what we like what I mentioned earlier about sort of the softer skills of of, of coaching, is you know making them realise that you know I'm not expecting them to you know, just keep pushing through, just, you know, trying to, uh, you know, tolerate that pain or, you know, um, one avenue that, uh, that that we can go down as well is, you know, uh, changing the exercise or modifying the exercise uh, all, the, uh, all the time. But there's only so much that from whatever exercise they're using, there's only so much either side of that, uh, either side of that spectrum that you can go, like what you mentioned, to actually get that, you know, training, uh, tra- training stimulus from there. Um, so I think that's that's a good point of thinking about you know what they what they can do, but then also realizing that you know we can we can see how much in in control of uh, the, the the pain that they are. What are your um, when it does come to sort of the exercise selection, and we'll 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 kind of carry on this uh, train of thought is how much uh, variation would you have from the exercises that that they're using because. When we're talking about athletes, you know the training program that they're doing, um, and you mentioned it at the start about being a, a you know, more of a longer distance uh, or an endurance athlete, will be it's repetition. You know, there's going to be a lot of things that you're doing. For myself, competing in powerlifting, it's the same movements all the all the time, and then that's where it can become, and um, we can pick up injuries. So when we're looking at exercise variation. How does that impact pain if all of a sudden you do change that exercise? Because, you know, depending on the athlete, they might think, oh, hang on, this is a this is a different exercise to what I've done before. You know, is that gonna cause more pain? Or actually, is it is it just making the making the athlete control that? I realize I spoke a lot there, but does that that make sense? <laughs> I think that's an excellent segue, actually. So um a lot of times I believe uh, the go-to is let's change up the exercise. You have pain with this exercise. Let's, let's change it up. And a good coach, uh, a good personal trainer, a good clinician has a variety of exercises, uh, exercise variations that maybe train a similar movement pattern or the same movement pattern that train the same muscles, uh, the same joints, but may put a little bit less load 
um, or stress on the injured area. And it, we may have a good reason to believe this exercise will be better tolerated by the athlete. Um, and that's a great place to start um, as a coach, as a clinician, even as an athlete who's troubleshooting their own pain. Um, but I think we run into trouble when we just avoid it altogether or, or grab an exercise variation um, that's so dissimilar that we're no longer really loading that area at all. Um, because we recognize that um, there was a good reason to be training that movement pattern. Um, there's a good reason to be training those muscles, to be training that joint. And there's a really good reason um, to, to load the injury site if we're dealing with, again, uh, the example of a, a tendinopathy, a tendon problem. There's a really good reason to, to load that tendon because that's actually the stimulus for repair. Um, so it's the actual loading that's going to rehabilitate the injury. Um, so if we avoid it altogether um, or pick an exercise variation that's too dissimilar, um, it may be doing us a disservice, even though that exercise may be well-tolerated and maybe pain-free. Um, and that's okay for a while, but ultimately we want to get back to a variation that at least begins to that process of, of loading the injured area. Um, so I know we get stuck in our ways. We tend to get stuck in our ways as athletes, uh, particularly barbell sports, right? You, yeah. you compete in three main lifts and um, damn it, you're going to squat, you're going to deadlift, you're going to bench press, right? Um, and one of those exercises becomes um, painful, too painful um, for you to tolerate. And maybe you maybe even got it checked out and you're you know, pretty confident that it's a, um, you know, a muscular tendinous injury, low risk, um, but uh, you just can't seem to find an exercise variation that allows you to work through um, a, an acceptable level of pain. Um, in that case, I do think it is wise to change the exercise variation. So um, we know, for example, if we're dealing with a patellar tendinopathy uh, uh, issue with the quad tendon, if we can pick a squat type exercise that loads the quadriceps maybe just a little bit less um, or puts a little bit less compression through um, through that tendon, that may mean limiting the depth of the squat, or that may, me, may mean performing a squat variation with a more vertical shin position. So a squat to a box, you know, rather than free squatting um, or changing the position of the load um, it, in order to accomplish uh, a more vertical shin position that may make that squat movement pattern less painful. Um, and while it may not load the squat in quite the same way that your competition squat that may not load the tendon in the same way that your competition squat does, um, that may be an appropriate variation at this point in time. So variations on exercise are certainly not a bad thing. Um, my understanding of, of the literature on this, I believe it was a uh, researcher out of Brazil, Cassiano, um, in 2022, did a systematic review. I think Brad Schoenfeld was involved in this, um, identified eight studies uh, looking at exercise variations and their outcomes. And the results were kind of across the board. Um, so it seems that too much variation uh, or random variation applied too quickly will result in decreased adaptations. So maybe less muscle hypertrophy, lower strength gain. Uh, whereas um, variations applied less frequently um, may actually show some benefit. Um, so Again, there's conflicting evidence here, but variations in and of themselves aren't a bad thing. Um, but variation is, you know, when we, we look at that term, variation implies randomness. Mm -hmm. But what we, what you and I are talking about 
is something very prescribed, very intentional. Yeah. Um, so if we're thinking about exercise variations, uh, I think we should think about exercise variation as exercise periodization. And you can periodize, you can periodize a rehab program and you should. So you have patellar tendinopathy, a patellar tendon problem. Um, we're not just going to switch your back squat out for a box squat um, and have you sit back to that box. And that's the exercise variation you use all the way up until the point of your next powerlifting meet. That's a mistake. Um, now, if we treat it like periodization, okay, right now, um, you know, coach Stevens patellar tendon is flared up. He can't, uh, barbell back squat, uh, to full depth at this point without, you know, eight out of 10 pain. And that pain seems to be getting worse day by day. We need to change something. Um, well, let's try a high, um, uh, squatting to a higher box. So it's going to limit squat depth, but it's also going to um, encourage a more vertical shin position. That's going to load the quadriceps tendon less. Um, and then we ask coach, uh, how'd that feel? You know, in the moment, oh, I still felt it, but that's a three out of 10 for that set. And then the next morning, it's not hurting any worse. So we're monitoring in another time frame. And now um, squats to a box uh, become an appropriate exercise in your training program for this period of time, but we're going to want to progress that back towards your competition squat or the squat you need to perform with at your next powerlifting meet. So we're planning the variations and, you know, our next progression might be, well, let's flip the box, make it a little bit lower um, to at least get the depth you need to hit a competition squat. Yeah. Um, we're still encouraging that, you know, sitting back into it toward the box in a more vertical shin position. Um, so it's still not, probably not loading the quadriceps tendon as much as your competition back squat, uh, but uh, we're working back to the variation that's going to be tested. Um, so I think of it as periodizing the variation, exercise variations, rather than just randomly applying them. Yeah, absolutely. What was actually quite funny there is you, you kind of described um, how my training was maybe a, a year ago, a year, a year and a bit ago. I was squatting down to, to a box and then I monitored my pain from there. So, um, yeah, I feel as though I'd, I'd, you'd, you'd watched me watched me a year ago do that then. Um, yeah, I think absolutely. What I really liked what you, what you mentioned there is, you know, periodization, because I think sometimes, you know, um again maybe a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a tangent when we're talking about injuries and niggles and pains and training but sometimes people can feel a little bit lost you know how how do i get back to where I, to where i was before um but actually by having that you know periodization that plan of you know at some point this isn't this isn't the exercise that we do forever now we need to get the we we need to get to this next point when you're looking, when we're looking at that and the uh, the exercise, uh, you know, variations and trying to have, you know, some uh, method behind the madness, if you like, what's the what what's the categories in, in in your head to try and you know filter that down so we know, okay, so is it range of movement? Is it is it load? What's kind of the process in your head um, to be able to manage that athlete's pain threshold, but also make sure that they're still getting a training stimulus to then be able to progress back to where they, where they need to be. So, so I like to take a movement pattern based approach in understanding um, training exercises and human movement. So, um, you know, it's very common to see exercises broken down into, you know, your squat pattern. Sometimes that's called like a lower extremity or lower body push pattern. 
your hinge pattern. Sometimes that's called the deadlift um, or lower body pull pattern. Um, you have your upper extremity patterns, your uh, upper body patterns, upper body horizontal pushing, upper body horizontal pulling, upper body vertical pulling, upper body vertical pushing. Uh, and I think those are the major six. You could incorporate some you know, twisting or bending through the trunk um, or some core work if you wanted to consider that a another um, resistance training movement pattern. Um, but I kind of break it down into those major patterns and try to determine, okay, what movement pattern or patterns is the athlete having trouble with or having pain with? Um, and usually it's, it's, pretty easy to guess that, for example, um, your injury you mentioned, um, if you have knee pain, uh, most likely it's going to present during a squat pattern type movement. Um, so we can draw from applied anatomy and our knowledge of applied biomechanics um, to, to try to predict what variation is going to be better tolerated based on um, the type of knee pain the individual has. Um, so the individual has anterior knee pain right on the patellar tendon, um, right? You know, it's not a, um, not necessarily inside of the knee, um, but it's in the front of the knee, um, feels like it's right on the tendon. So we can predict that um, something that applies more load to the quadriceps is likely going to be um, more challenging for that tissue. Um, something that applies a compressive load um, so tendons are really great at handling end to end pull. Um, it's when they get kind of pulled across a bone and compressed as they're getting pulled across a bone. That's when they tend to, um, get pissed off a bit, uh, if they're already experiencing maybe a, a reactive, uh, tendinopathy or, or issue like that. Um, so we know that the patellar tendon gets pulled across the front of the femur, the front of the knee, um, more so in a deep squat. Uh, and we know that when an individual um, uh, performs a um, a squat with you know heavier weight, for example, on the bar, it's probably going to load the quadriceps more. So it may be as simple as lowering uh, the intensity. I won't discount that, but I do think exercise variation can and should play a role here. Um, so you have in the back of your mind kind of this. Um, progression informed by applied uh, biomechanics and anatomy of which one, which exercise variations are likely to be less um, stressful or apply less load to that area of the body that's injured versus the ones that are likely to apply more load or more stress to that area of the body. Um, and we can manipulate other variables of exercise prescription as well. We don't have to limit ourselves to just exercise variation. In fact, when we're dealing with uh, musculoskeletal injury like a tendinopathy, um, the period of recovery in between training bouts, um, should be considered. So, um, let's make sure that we're not training it too frequently. So maybe spacing out our, our heavy squat days, making sure that the tendon has maybe at least 48 to 72 hours to recover from your heavy squat sessions, uh, at this stage. Um, but I think laying that out for the client or athlete, these are the general exercise variations that I think you would benefit from. And then we're going to auto-regulate. And I think coaches are familiar with that term, but the client may not be familiar with that term auto-regulation. We're basically going to take your input, maybe in the form of this pain monitoring model um, during the workout and maybe the next day, um, and use that as information to help us auto-regulate when it's time to increase the load, you know, increase the weight on the bar, um, modify one of these other exercise programming variables, or switch to the next more challenging variation. So I, I never set out a calendar. This is when like yeah. 
you know, like a strength coach might have a period, uh, an annual plan laid out periodized for their athlete and team. And that's, that's great uh, for something that's a bit more predictable, like a season of sport. Um, but no clinician or no coach is going to be able to predict how quickly um, that knee injury is going to resolve or, or begin to feel better. So I always like to leave the time frame a little bit more uh, open, but I present a, a plan. And I think having that plan laid out, um, at least verbally, maybe even on paper, hey, if the individual is working more independently, um, you could give this to a client um, as a, uh, a rehab template, in a sense. Um, this is how you're going to get back to performance. And I think that can be a powerful thing. Absolutely. I think, you know, I, I, I think you touched on it earlier on um, in, in the chat as well about um, giving the giving the athlete a, a actual knowledge. You know, why is it, you know, why is it that the, 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 they're doing that? Um, because then that way, you know, when we're talking about control, when we're talking about bringing that um that threshold or, or barrier down to be like, look, we don't need to push through through it. All of a sudden, you know, because I think as soon as something happens uh, and we the, we get the ball rolling on trying to um, correct things or, you know, help them, I want to get back as soon as I can because ultimately whether it's people training in the gym, whether it's someone uh, performing a sport, they all started. We all started because we enjoy we, we enjoyed it, and everyone wants to get back to it because I think there's everything as though like the the I actually spoke about this the, the other week. The example was um, I knocked the bumper off my off my car, and I was thinking, oh no, that's it. I'm never going to be able to drive my car. I'm not going to be able to fix it. Whereas actually, um, finding out how to take the bumper off and put it back on. I was like, oh, okay, that's actually that's actually pretty good. It was it was a quick fix, you know. Whereas in my head, it's going to take longer. And I think sometimes when we're talking about injuries, if we think it's going to take three months and we commit to that process, then actually it might take a little bit. It might take a little bit less. It might take a little bit longer. But at least then you've got you've got that thought process of actually it doesn't necessarily need to be as um, as bad. As what as, as what as what people think um is that the um the response that, that you found from actually giving you know uh, you know clients and athletes the, the the knowledge so that then that way you know they can control their pain threshold or control the exercises a little bit more or or maybe highlight things a little bit more uh, to you sooner yeah so we're all searching for quick fixes. Um, you wanted your bumper fixed immediately, I'm certain, um, <laughs> and, and as would I. Um, and it is our responsibility to give our clients, to give our athletes an indication of prognosis. Uh, how long do we think this is actually going to take? Uh, we, we can't give them a an exact time frame, but we can give them a general idea. Yeah. Um, and I think that does set the expectation. Um, and usually that comes as a shock because um, I want to feel better next week. I want to feel better tomorrow. Um, but when I say this reactive tendinopathy may take multiple months, three or four months to fully resolve, boy, oh, three or four months. I mean, I'm done with my season by then. That's yeah. I have two meets planned in that time. But wait a minute, wait a minute. We're going to use the pain monitoring model and we're going to use a progressive training program to get to that point. And you're going to be feeling better along the way. You might be getting stronger in a lot of ways along the way. And we're going to point out each and every one of those milestones that that athlete meets. Um, so they're going to know that they're making progress and that's very motivating. And uh, it helps that time that we know it takes 
time to rehabilitate injuries. Um, it helps that time go by and keeps them motivated with the process. And I think um, barbell athletes such as yourself are maybe rare in this case where um, you focus on certain exercises and you know a handful of variations and you're content doing that season in and season out. Um, with the majority of clients I see from the general population, um, it would be very difficult for, for a lot of my clients to commit to just squatting, deadlifting, and bench pressing um, as their primary fitness or resistance training exercises. So um, in, a, in, a lot of sen- in a lot of cases, um, the idea of variations um, can be exciting for the client. Um, and I believe it was um, a group of Spanish researchers along with Dr. Schoenfeld um, showed that exercise variations can actually increase motivation to train. Mm-hmm. So we can use this at, at, to our benefit, present an exercise that maybe the athlete hasn't done in a while. It hasn't been in your program in a while. And, oh, I'm going to get to do Bulgarians. Oh man, uh, they're going to hurt, but I haven't done those in a while. And I'm kind of excited to, to program those for the next six weeks or so. Um, you know, it's one of those things where we can use uh, that intentional variation in the program as a strength, not a barrier to, to participation in the rehab exercise. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the, the variation side of things, coming speaking as a speaking as a powerlifter, you know, using a, a safety bar, even uh, you know, front squats. Um, I can't say I've ever looked forward to doing Bulgarian split squats, but um yeah, you know, adding that in is is, is something exciting. And I think that's why, you know, speaking about um the exercises that athletes do, that that mindset shift if you like can be oh actually it gives me an opportunity to be able to do this or focus on this you know one of the things that I've, that I've said before you know lifters that, that I've worked with or do work with um okay so you know we, we're going to be focusing on box squats we can pb and bench press we can focus on we, we, we can focus on this so I think sometimes having that mind mindset shift um and the knowledge that we've spoken about ultimately helps the athlete and just arms them to be able to think, you know, actually we've got an actual plan a little bit like what you mentioned about the, the periodization. We've got a focus, a focus to go on. And um, that's, that's what I wanted to, you know, dive into today with you, because I think everyone knows about, um, you know, planning into a a season, like an off season or uh, planning into a powerlifting meet. Whereas actually when it comes to pain and we start, we start going off that way a little bit, um, it doesn't have to be a case of let's just try this. Um, You know, there's got to be, there's got to be a thought process that we need to work through. Um, Quite a lot of topics and tangents uh, thrown in in there. But the last question that I like to ask Merrick, from everything that we've spoken about today and for everyone listening, whether it be um, a, a lifter or an athlete who might have who might have an injury or might be suffering pain or the coaches listening, what would be your take-home points or words of wisdom from everything that we've spoken about today? So pain isn't the end. And it, I believe your previous um, podcast guest, Dr. McGill, uh, his book, um, The Gift of Injury. Mm-hmm. Right, I, that that resonates. Um, we can use uh, these difficult times, uh, these injuries we experience, to ultimately make ourselves stronger, more knowledgeable athletes, more knowledgeable coaches, better clinicians. Um, so, it in a sense, uh, that pain can be thought of as a gift, just like the degenerative tendon problems that are actually more likely, the pain-free tendons that are actually more likely to actually rupture 
than the painful tendons. That pain is a gift. It's, it's your body saying it needs some change. Um, and that change we've talked a lot about, um, you know, on the biomechanics side, exercise selection, um, exercise variation. We've, we've gone down that rabbit hole today in this conversation, um, but we can incorporate change in other areas of our lives as well. Um, so pain is so complex. Uh, injury is so complex that exercise variation and loading is only one piece of the puzzle. There are so many things that we can explore and learn more about as far as nutrition, sleep, um, that will ultimately make us better, stronger athletes and more productive humans um, in the long run when we come on the outside uh, on the other side of this injury or problem. Um, it's so easy to, to get down, especially when we have a strong athletic identity. And I think pretty much all strength coaches have this most successful athletes have this, um, you know, a lot of general population individuals actually have this to some extent they have, they like to go to the gym. They like to go to CrossFit. They like to be active. Um, and it can be a, um, it can be a big hit when something gets, something threatens that or takes that away, uh, or interferes with that. Um, uh, but I suppose the take home message is it, it doesn't have to be a loss. It can be a net gain. Um, as long as we're patient, stay the course, get the right help, obviously, um, but don't give up. I think that's I think that's a really good uh, take home point. Um, one of the and I've you know I, I've I've maybe touched on it before, but um, my my very first uh, coach when I was uh, when I first started playing rugby was you know you're going to learn a lot more from a uh, from a loss than you than you are a win and sometimes it can be a really good reflection to think you know actually you know how can I keep on top of this and it might actually open up doors to yeah do you know what I actually need to focus on my nutrition or my sleep or my stress or anything like that and you know some yeah I think it can open doors to think what is it what is it that you need to focus on which I think is an important topic to to touch on because you know um, I think it'll never it'll never be a thing of a past you know when when people get an injury no one's ever going to think okay great i can do this now um i don't think that'll ever happen however you know i think that's a a human reaction to think oh no what what's gone on like with me knocking my bumper off but if you can actually you know accept that i think there's the is it the seven phases of um denial or, so, or something like that you know if you're gonna do that and then you know move on and think okay how can i action this um i think you know a lot more uh, a lot more athletes a lot more clients will get back from injury because you know on the flip side of it which we maybe didn't touch on you know sometimes um you see people moving away from the spot or not wanting to not wanting to do it anymore and commit to it which um you know hopefully you know for everyone listening they can see that there is is actually a, a plan and there is systems out there that can that can work um thanks a lot Merrick for taking the time to jump on really really enjoyed chatting with you today um for um if anyone has any questions about what we've spoken about today, want to see the the, the content that you put out there, um, or you know, yeah, reach out to you and, and ask you any questions. Where where could people find you or reach out to you? Yeah, so um, I'm active on Instagram. So I have a uh, I guess a link tree or solo link in my bio that links to all of my fitness writing, some of my research publications, um, some of the other podcasts I've been on recently, and um, I'll be speaking at a National Strength and Conditioning Association conference in the States uh, in April, Great Lakes Conference. Um, so if you're local, um, come see me there, um, speaking on a related topic. Um, but uh, 
yeah, uh, just reach out. Love to love to chat. Love talking shop. And thank you for having me, Coach. No, no problem at all. Like I say, thanks a lot for taking the time to to jump on. Thought there was some really, really good, um, uh, good, good content in there, um, and and a really, really good message. So, um, thanks a lot, Merrick, for taking the time to jump on. Thanks a lot to everyone listening, and I will see you all next week.